science enthusiasts. I'm your host, Jason Zakowski. I'm a high school chemistry teacher, but you probably know our dogs, Bunsen and Beaker. They're the science dogs on social media. This show takes what's best from their account, the curiosity and fun found there, and swirls it into podcast form. Every week, we're going to take some deep dive into an area of science and look at the research that's going on with our pets. We'll also have an expert guest who will enthrall you with their area of knowledge. This is the Science Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Science Podcast. We hope you're happy and healthy out there. Speaking of being happy and healthy, um, <laughs> Bunsen was neither happy nor healthy for a couple days this week. He had a run-in with a porcupine. We'll be talking more about that in the family section. He's on the mend. He's doing great. It was definitely a stressful event and a shocking one. Um, I've never seen a porcupine on our property and I've for the 20 years I've lived here. So it definitely kind of came out of nowhere. We'll be sharing that story in story time. On the podcast this week, you know, it was such a stressful week for us. I'm just going with some fun articles today. So the in Science News, we're just going to talk about porcupines. Um, a lot of people had some good questions on social media about them. They don't, you don't live in an area with porcupines or you live in an urban setting, so you never see them, even though they live in your area. So we're just going to talk about some cool, interesting facts about porcupines. And in pet science, no, it's just going to be another animal article about otters. Ah, <laughs> Our expert guest this week is a really cool one. I'm so fortunate we got to talk to her. Her name is Dr. Tanya Harrison. She is a former NASA rover scientist who worked on the optical gear on the rovers that are on Mars, if you can believe it. So cool. I can't wait to share her interview with you guys. Hey, dogs, what do you get when you cross a porcupine and a turtle? A slow poke. <laughs> too soon? Maybe that's a bit too soon, hey, Bunsen? Okay, poor buddy. All right, on with the show, because there's no time like science time. This week in science news, we're going to talk about porcupines. I didn't know much about porcupines. I, Aside from what they look like, I've seen them in my life before. I've seen them in zoos. I've seen more porcupines in zoos than in the wilds of the areas I've explored my entire life. I've also, as I mentioned kind of in the preamble, I've never seen a porcupine on our property. And um, Bunsen had a run-in with a porcupine. Um, we'll get into the whole story and family section. But one of the interesting things that came about it, if if you want to say it's interesting from such an unfortunate encounter, is uh, a lot of people were asking some really great questions about porcupines. There were some misconceptions, but you don't you can't blame people. I don't know at the first thing really about hedgehogs. I don't know the first thing about animals that live in other parts of the world. So I thought I would just talk a little bit about porcupines. So the North American porcupine is also known as the Canadian porcupine, and it's it's big. It's actually the second largest rodent in all of North America, with the first largest rodent being the beaver. The porcupine isn't necessarily from North America. It's from Africa, um, and its ancestors crossed the ocean and I mean, millions of years ago, remember, like due to plate tectonics, the ocean wasn't as wide as it was today. Um, and then it worked its way up to North America from Brazil. That's where the, you know, the early fossil records of the porcupine originate from. The porcupine kind of looks like a beaver. If you were to take off all of its quills, it does look similar to the beaver. 
Um, it's got a beaverish face uh, and it's got a tail, not a big flat tail like a beaver, but it does have a tail. The porcupine is covered with roughly 30,000 quills. So Bunsen had between 60 and 70 stuck in his face and in the roof of his mouth. People were worried about, oh, what's going to happen to the porcupine? It lost all those quills. Well, if you do the math, um, 60 to 70 out of 30,000 is not really a large percentage of its quills. And a porcupine will have its quills grow, grow back. And the quills are ridiculously sharp. So sharp. Just trying to help out Bunsen and keep him steady, I was pricked, I don't know, 20, 30 times. And uh, and they're just so sharp, they go right into your skin, just like a needle. Uh, and the quills are hollow. They're yellowish in color, and they have a black tip. And they're covered with little teeny tiny barbs. Porcupines in the wild rely heavily on their sense of smell. They can't see very well, and they stick close to trees. So they're not going to be out in fields. They're, they live high up in the trees. I've seen a few porcupines in the trees. This one came waddling out of growth around a fallen tree. It just happened really quick. Now, there's a couple things that I just want to get straight. I, we have no ill will towards the porcupine. It was just in nature, and they're not aggressive, right? They try to run away. They're, <laughs> uh, they don't move very quickly, just like beavers on land don't move very quickly. So running away for a porcupine from something as quick as a dog or a wolf or a coyote or a fox isn't a super, <laughs> isn't, you know, they're not going to have a lot of success with that defense mechanism. So that's why they have those quills. When they're threatened, porcupines will make a chattering noise. This one didn't. Uh, and it will wave its tail. I didn't see that, but they can actually use their tail like a club. Um, and when they tense up their body, the, all of the quills shoot out. Like when they're relaxed, the quills are like, almost look like soft hair on their body. But when they're, when they're in fight or flight, they tense up and the quills kind of like come out like a, a, you know, like a pin cushion. That's what, that's what we, that's what I saw. Now it's a misconception that porcupines can shoot their quills. They, there is some evidence that when they're in that tensed up mode, and they're swinging their tail, maybe the tail, maybe some of the quills can come loose a little bit and, and travel a small distance, but they're not like expunging their quills. But what happens is they, they swing their tail and hit the animal. That will hopefully scare the animal away. But usually what happens is the animal gets upset because it hurts so bad and tries to attack the porcupine and it goes even worse. And that's what happened to Bunsen. Once one of the porcupine quills gets lodged in your skin, because of your body heat, uh, the barbs will, will be activated and the, the barbs actually swell due to heat. So you can't pull them out without causing tearing. Now you can pull them out. Uh, and there's a couple tricks to that. Like you can, you can cut off the tip of the quill and that releases a little bit of the hollow air and they deflate. And then you might be able to pull them out. It still is going to hurt yourself or the animal quite a bit. Now, animals will try to kill and eat porcupines all the time. It's not like they're invincible. Some animals are better than others. And a lot of times animals lose or they get quilled in the killing of the porcupine. 
Porcupines don't have quills on their belly. So if a porcupine gets flipped over, it's really, really vulnerable. And there's a type of weasel called the fisher. And these weasels are super adept at flipping and killing a porcupine. And then they can kind of eat them belly up. Grotesque, I know. Um, but they do have predators in the wild. One interesting thing about the quills that you may not know about is the quills are actually covered with a fatty acid that strongly shows antibacterial effects. So when they tested that same fatty acid against bacteria in the lab, uh, gram-positive bacteria, it it inhibited their growth. So that seems weird. Like, why would the quills where you're going to get stabbed have this anti-antimicrobial property? And it's because the porcupines are constantly actually stabbing themselves. I didn't know this, but it is quite common. Porcupines are pretty clumsy. They'll climb up a tree and literally fall out of the tree and stab themselves with their own quills. So their quills can't be like covered with a toxin or some kind of poison because they'll murder themselves, right? So when those quills go in to an animal, it's outside stuff that's going to cause the infection. Uh, And Bunsen is on, you know, antibiotics. Uh, for that. But the quills themselves don't necessarily, at least the scientific evidence shows, they don't cause infection. Porcupines live about 10 years. They're one of the longest lived rodents and they love to eat all things trees, um, though they can eat grubs and, and worms and bugs and things like that. But they love to eat all things trees. So that's a little bit about the porcupines. Um, I hope Bunsen got the point of his encounter and it doesn't happen again. That's science news for this week. This week in pet science, ah, we're going to talk about otters. I love otters. Let's talk about something that's adorable. (laughs) One of our favorite TV shows is The Good Place. I don't know if you've seen The Good Place. It's got uh, my wife was a big fan of Cheers back in the day. It's got Ted Danson in it. He's so good as playing Michael, the quote-unquote architect of The Good Place. So the the first episode of The Good Place, uh, when Eleanor, a.k.a. uh, Kirsten Bell, is in The Good Place, and Michael's talking about uh, what what The Good Place is. He's like, um, it's going to make you feel like otters holding hands, uh, that feeling, which is adorable if you've seen that. Now, the little science article we're going to talk about today isn't about necessarily otters holding hands. It's about otter speech. There are these uh, tropical river otters, and these tropical river otters from Central and South America, they are pretty much solitary. So they don't actually go in groups. They're all by themselves. And one of the things that this study looked at was trying to figure out the sounds they make and what the meaning of the sounds are. And uh, the river otters make an adorable variety of sounds um, from squeaks to growls. And they found that <laughs> they found that they mean something from being playful to being scared. So the study uh, was headed up by Alexander Salvaros. Um, he's an otter expert. What a great job. <laughs> what, what kind of, that, that's hilarious. What's your, if you're talking on a show and you had a Chiron, you know, like the, the thing that's under you, the title, it's like otter expert. I would love that. <laughs> Some social species of otter, like the Amazon giant otter, they use up to 22 different calls. The lonesome North American river otter only has about four known calls. So there is information out there and they, they do have a certain number per species. The neotropical river otter is the focus of the study because it's been a mystery. These solitary otters live in lakes and rivers, and they only come 
together once a year to mate. So they're not the ones you see that are in packs or the ones that are floating down rivers, holding hands. They're, they're, pretty, they're pretty much go rogue by themselves. So to figure out how these otters, these new tropical otters speak, and it's really hard to find them in the wild, they took a look at some of the otters living in a shelter on the island of Santa Castarina which is off the coast of Brazil, southern coast of Brazil. And because the, they were on this preserve, um, they were able to get really good audiophiles of these solitary otters. And they spent three months observing the animals to understand what kind of calls they made. From their research, they found that the neotropical river otters had six distinct kinds of vocalization, and they were linked to different behaviors. So the otters emitted short little chirps, and that was when they wanted something, like a treat or a rub. So they were orphaned, and even though they were in a preserve, they still interacted with humans. When they were being groomed or when they were playing, they made squeaks. Also, they uh, made a ha-type sound when they were standing on their hind legs as a way to signal that something new has appeared, like a caregiver or something that was new and noteworthy. The last two sounds were a real guttural growl when they were defending their food or when somebody was too close and a high-pitched scream when they were fighting. So these six distinct calls now have been logged and can be used when um, studying these neotropical river otters in the wild. One caution from the team of biologists that studied these uh, river otters in this preserve is that while you can maybe take some of their calls, you have to be careful because it may not be 100% what is in the wild. Remember, these animals were raised in captivity and there was a big difference between the male and female otters with the female otters having more aggressive calls. And there's a lot of ideas to why the, the females had more aggressive calls. They could be more territorial. Um, they, could, they could have been forced to hang out with males in closer proximity and they were upset about that. <laughs> uh, neotropical river otters have been declining over the years, so it's made studying them even tougher. Uh, they're kind of like finding a needle in a haystack. One idea they have uh, is that by playing back the calls, they could bring the river otters into an area to look at their population size, their health, right? If they're really hard to find, you could call them and then uh, check out on them. That's pet science, even though these aren't pets. For this week, hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Science Podcast this week. The Science Podcast is always going to be free to download, but if you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. The first one is sign up on our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash Bunsen Burner. There's multiple tiers of support. We have a ton of fun with the patron group. You get to be on the podcast. You get postcards from Bunsen and Beaker. You get swag. You get early pictures. You get a whole bunch of awesome stuff. So check it out. The lowest tier is only five bucks a month. The other way you could support the show is checking out our merch shop. Our merch shop is hilarious. It's got all of these adorable cartoons of Bunsen and Beaker. We keep producing more. I just want to thank the people that have supported the show that way. We're really, really proud of our merch shop because the, the merch, the clothes, is really high quality. The colors are vibrant, and um, we come up with some really fun designs all the time. So check it out. That's at BunsenBurnerBMD.com. Thanks, everybody. On to the interview. It's time for Ask an Expert on the Science Podcast, and I am, I'm actually so excited to talk to Dr. Tanya Harrison, who is a professional Martian. 
Um, in, in the segment. How are you doing today, Tanya? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Where are you calling in from? I am in Washington, D.C., right near the Capitol. Are you are you kind of removed from all of like the political stuff in Washington? Your job keeps you away from that or um, or not so much? Uh, to some extent. I definitely live in the thick of things like where everything has been happening for the last few months, years. <laughs> uh, so that's been an interesting experience. I moved here at an, a very interesting time, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see where you're going with that. Okay. Um, and the other kind of like the other quick question we're asking all of our guests is, um, how are you and your family doing with coronavirus? Um, doing well. I think luckily, since my job was pretty remote to begin with, uh, not a lot changed. Um, and a lot of people wanted to use Earth observation data to look at the impact of COVID around the world. So we were very lucky in, in that regard as well from a business standpoint. So I feel lucky to have made it through uh, without having gotten COVID, still having a job. Uh, I've gotten the vaccine and I, I, I feel extremely lucky to just be here and okay on the other side. Nice. Uh, have you got both shots or, or just one? Uh, I've gotten both. <laughs> oh, good. That's great. Anyways, let's talk about you and science. Um, could you talk to everybody a little bit? We'll get into why you're a professional Martian really quick. <laughs> uh, but could you talk to everybody a little bit about your your education in science? Like, where what what do you did you do to get where you are? Sure. So I started out in astronomy and physics because I thought, well, I, I love planets. I love Mars and planets are in space, so I should be an astronomer. And I went to the University of Washington in Seattle and they they kind of force you to double major in astronomy and physics so that you'll be more employable at the end of the day, which I appreciate that they are looking out for you like that. <laughs> um, but I didn't realize until about the end of my junior year that I actually should have gone into geology if I wanted to study Mars itself. Oh. And I didn't – yeah. So that was a, a good revelation to have. Um, I didn't want to stay another year at the university and pay them more money to get yet another bachelor's degree. So instead, I shifted from my original plan, which was to finish my bachelor's and then go into a PhD in astronomy. I pivoted and went into a master's program in geology instead so that I could get more of that foundational knowledge to be able to go on for a PhD in geology later. So I went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut, which is a very small liberal arts school that happened to have someone there working on Mars things um, and got a degree in earth and environmental sciences. So I also studied some earth stuff there and then um, worked in industry for a few years, which I think we'll talk about later, uh, and then went back to school to get a PhD at the University of Western Ontario in geology with a specialization in planetary science and exploration such a mouthful of a degree name, <laughs> um, but basically geology of Mars. Oh, okay. So <laughs> what, when you were a young person, what was it that grabbed you about um, like space and Mars and, and studying like physics? I, I've loved space since I was like five years old from a very random source I, I watched a film that came out in the late 80s called Big Bird in Japan, where Big Bird from Sesame Street meets Kaguya Heime, who's the mythological Japanese princess of the moon. Um, there's actually a mission now at the moon from the Japanese space agency named after her. And something about that character I found fascinating. And I started going out every night and I would just stare at the moon, um, look at the stars. I, I just got really fascinated with them. 
And then my parents watched a lot of Star Trek and that got me even more interested in space. And I really wanted to be like Geordi. Like I really wanted to work on spaceships. I thought that was really cool. Um, but it wasn't until the Pathfinder mission that landed on Mars in 1997 that my attention really focused on Mars specifically and not just all of space. Um, the fact that we had sent a rover to another planet and were driving it around and telling it what to do blew my mind. That was actually the first rover we'd ever sent to another planet. And so I I knew at that point I really wanted to work on rovers. And so I kind of threw myself into studying Mars specifically. And then a couple years later in 1999, NASA launched this project called the Mars Millennium Project where they were challenging students to design a base on Mars in the year 2030. And they had listed some resources on their website of places you could go to learn more about Mars. And one of the things they had was a group called the Mars Society, which is this international group of people that are really excited about Mars. And so I contacted my local chapter and they were really excited to have this kid. I was like 13, 14, something like that. <laughs> um, just like asking them tons of questions. And I I was in an area with a lot of aerospace companies. So a lot of the people that were part of the chapter were in the industry that I wanted to be in. And they gave me tons of advice about like job shadowing opportunities. Um, they gave me opportunities to speak at local science fiction conventions about space. Um, eventually I got to be like the head of space track programming for one of the largest sci-fi conventions in the Pacific Northwest region. And I was like 14, which was crazy. What? And I, yeah. And I ended up doing it for like 10 years. <laughs> so now that was say, cool. When you say a sci-fi convention, like, is that, that is that different from the a comic con or 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 is this more like you know hard science less comic bookies? Um, this one is kind of a mix of science and uh, a big focus on science fiction literature. Okay, gotcha. All right, sorry. I, I yeah yeah I get the distinction now. I'm sorry. Continue. Oh no, it's okay. It's it's like <laughs> similar ish to a comic con, but we actually had like entire tracks about space and science and like. Mm-hmm. professors would come in from the local university and stuff like that. Um, in addition to the things where we had um, panels that would focus on like different publishers and, and stuff like that. It's very cool. So that that's really what set me down that path. And I, I'm so happy that these people just kind of adopted me and I still keep in touch with a lot of them to this day. Like uh, I think that they're just excited as I am to see that this actually paid off. And now I'm doing exactly what I dreamed of doing 20 years ago. So when you mentioned, now this is a great segue to the next part here. You mentioned watching Star Trek. You uh, There's a character named Jordy who f- fixes, works on spaceships. You actually got to be part of the Mars Curiosity rover. Um, could you t- talk about your time with that team? I worked on camera systems on Curiosity while I was in that time period between my master's and my PhD. Um, I was working for a company that's a subcontractor for NASA that builds a lot of cameras for different space missions. And so we built the mast cams, which are the color eyes of Curiosity, the Mars hand lens imager or Molly, which is the camera at the end of the robotic arm that takes the selfies. If you've ever seen those epic <laughs> selfies that the rover sends back, that camera does those. And then the Mars descent imager or Marty, which is mounted to the belly of the rover. And it took a series of images as the rover was landing that ended up being released as a video, which 
was the coolest thing we ever sent back from Mars until the full motion landing video from Perseverance, which like, <laughs> puts curiosity to shame. Um, but I, you know, I can't be mad. It's progress in technology. So it's good to yeah. see. Um, so that was pretty cool. Like we spent a lot of time doing, um, like I had to learn how to code in Python because that's what we used to command the cameras and I'd never used it before. Um, we did a lot of testing in terms of like, not just testing the instruments, but testing us as humans, uh, like going and sending fake versions of the instruments into the desert and and pretending we were on Mars, uh, going to JPL and like living on Mars time for some of these tests so we could practice how that would be on your body. Um, it's a it's a really big change, like doing all of those things. And it was such a big shift from the the first mission I had worked on for Mars was the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is a satellite. And it's so much it's so different from working on a rover. It's so much less hands-on, like in terms of how many other people you have to interact with. So I went from working on a mission where I could just kind of hang out in my office, put on headphones and listen to music all day to a mission where you're just on telecons constantly, like figuring out which instrument can work at what time and what they're going to do and what things can and can't happen at the same time. It's really complicated. Um, So I think at the end of the day, from like a coolness standpoint, the rovers are cooler to say you work on. But in terms of my personal happiness, I liked working on the satellites more. <laughs> <laughs> they, they're they just not as complicated, right? Like the rover has a, a jillion different parts from landing to driving to being able to take all of the, the different data and, and experiments and, and samples and whatnot on the ground versus a satellite, which is kind of limited with what it can do <laughs> from space. Exactly. And you're not so concerned about things like power. And on the rover, you're literally adjudicating every single watt that's coming out of, in the case of Curiosity, the the thermal battery. Uh, in the case of something like Opportunity, every watt that you're getting in, in solar power. And so you're constantly making decisions of, you know, do we drive today or do we do science today? Because we can't do both. Um, and the satellites are pretty constant. You know, the only thing that really changes is depending on how far away Mars is, how much data can we send back? So that would be kind of depressing. When Mars was close for the camera that I was working on, we could send back like hundreds of images a day. And when Mars was close to the other side of the sun, we could send back maybe less than 10 images a day. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. You mentioned, okay, so you mentioned, this is maybe not super with what you worked on with the cameras, but you mentioned the battery on on Curiosity. Um, and most people will be kind of like shocked what kind of system Curiosity runs off of. Could you just give everybody a little idea what, how it's powered? Sure. So Curiosity runs on a radioisotope thermoelectric generator or an RTG, which is basically a tiny little nuclear reactor. So it's got a chunk of plutonium in there. And as the plutonium decays, it generates heat that then gets transferred uh, into electricity for the rover to run off of. And we need this because it can generate more power more consistently than we would get with solar panels. And Curiosity as a rover is just so big. If you put solar panels on it, it would become unwieldy. Um, Like there were some designs initially that had solar panels on it and it looked absolutely ridiculous because this thing (laughs) is so big. So it just made more sense. Wouldn't it have to fold out into like a massive like football size? Like wouldn't it need an incredible amount of solar panels? I'm sorry I interrupted you. 
I'm just like shocked they decided that was a good design to start with. I, I'm sorry, this is a bad line of questioning. <laughs> I'm just oh no 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 worries. It's it's uh it's more like a heritage thing. Everything we had sent before, like the uh, the other rovers were solar powered, and mm. so the initial thought was, well, we'll make another solar powered rover. But when they started realizing how big the rover would have to be to fit all of the equipment that they wanted on board, in particular, um, the sample analysis instrument that makes up basically the entire body of the rover is very large and very complicated. Um, it, it just became apparent that that wasn't going to be a, a viable solution to have solar panels. Um, the trade-off though is the nuclear batteries are more expensive. And uh, I believe at the time when they were trying to put it together, there was a plutonium shortage because uh, they had stopped production of it through the Department of Energy. Hmm. Um, so that sometimes wreaks havoc on these space missions where we do use little bits of plutonium. Hmm. Okay, cool. That's awesome. That's going to be people, not the average person knows that it's like a, it's a nuclear battery um, <laughs> on, on the rover. Uh, a couple, just a couple more questions before we move on. So the camera systems that you were part of helping design on, on Curiosity, when the pictures were sent back to you, did it, how did that make you feel? Like you were, I can't imagine, could you, is there something there that's important you'd like people to know? It's it's absolutely surreal to think that you've worked on something that is now on another planet and it's taking pictures and it's sending them back to Earth. And these are things that no one on the planet has ever seen before, like mm-hmm. on our planet. And the novelty of that doesn't wear off. Like every <laughs> single day I wanted – for a while when I was working on Opportunity, I would – I felt like I was, I would walk to work and I felt like I would just wanted to dance my way in to see what we were going to see every single day. Um, same thing with the satellites too. I always wanted to know like what's going to be in the images today that we have never seen before. And that's an experience that not a lot of people get. I mean, everybody can share in looking at the images. They, they go online for the rovers, at least within 24 hours of being sent back to earth. So everyone in the world can enjoy them pretty much at the same time as the science team does. But being a person that's in the loop, like controlling those cameras and like choosing what they take pictures of, only a handful of people will ever get to do that in their entire lives. And I could not have dreamed when I was a kid thinking that I wanted to work on rovers that that would actually be my job someday, like physically photographing another planet. (laughs) (laughs) That is so cool. I just got goosebumps listening to you uh, talk about it. That's that's so cool. Now, is there a particular selfie picture that's your favorite? They're all so different. And that's the mm. cool thing about Gale Crater, where Curiosity is. Uh, some of the other places we've sent the rovers have been – they haven't been as visually striking because we had to go to these pretty broad, flat, safe places mm. because we didn't have the landing systems that we do now. But thanks to the crazy sky crane system that we <laughs> used with Curiosity and then again with Perseverance, we could land in much more – uh, what would have previously been treacherous areas. And so we're just seeing these really diverse landscapes. And there's actually one that just came back, a selfie in the last couple of weeks, where Curiosity is finally really getting into the lower parts of Mount Sharp, the mountain in Gale Crater that it's driving up to sample the layers that were deposited in the lake that used to be in that crater. And something about like seeing it right there next to those layers and you've got some like little sand dunes nearby that are just really dark and beautiful. Um, it was kind of like 
oh, we're there. We're in the place that we have been trying to get for all of these years. Wow. That's a, that's crazy. Um, man, I can listen to you talk about curiosity. Well, I have one more question. Uh, <laughs> is there is there something that Curiosity discovered um, or any of the satellites or rovers you've worked on that you feel is the most profound? It's something that sticks out to you. That's tough. I think the thing that sticks out to me the most is anything that we've caught while it's in motion. So like we've seen dust devils moving across the surface with the rovers or from with the satellites, we've caught avalanches as they were happening, like dust falling off of the edges of the Northern polar cap Hmm. or impact craters that will have an image where there was no crater. And then an image a week or two later where a crater has formed, like we're seeing the landscape change right in front of us. And just seeing that Mars is this dynamic place. It's not like the moon, which is just kind of, hanging out there in space. There's not a lot happening there. (laughs) Mars has weather and seasons and landslides and like all these things that are happening all the time. It's certainly not as active as the earth, but seeing that happening on another world, I think is, is really striking. And that's the kind of stuff that really like sticks in my mind. Do you, okay. I have to ask one more question (laughs) about this before we move on. Um, do you feel the rovers are going to find uh, life on Mars or or something akin to that or evidence of that? So the, the catch there is the rovers themselves don't really have the equipment that we would need to definitively say that we've found life. But Perseverance is going to be caching samples and those samples, when they come back to Earth, we'll be able to analyze those in a lab to look for signs of DNA. And that's really what we need to definitively say this is or was life. You know, we've been tricked before with things like uh, in the 90s, there was this meteorite from Mars called the Allen Hills meteorite, where some scientists thought that they found microfossils in them. But we learned after we analyzed it further, that these are actually features that were most likely created by a, a natural like geologic process and not a biological process. And so that's led us to learn to be much more cautious in terms of saying whether we've found life or not, because this is going to be the biggest discovery in human history. So we really want to be careful and make sure that if we find it, we are certain that it is life and it came from Mars. It's not something that we brought with us from Earth. Right. Yes. I've seen pictures of just how insane and like gowned up everybody that has to handle the rover so they don't like send a little chunk of their hand DNA to to Mars or something like that. Right. Yeah. We don't want to be sneezing on the rovers. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, And you worked on Opportunity as well. Um, And could you tell everybody a little bit about the length of that mission? What made it kind of special? So Opportunity landed on Mars in 2004, along with a, a twin rover spirit, which landed on the other side of the planet in the same month. And they both had an anticipated lifespan of 90 Martian days. And this was based on how long they thought it would take before dust would cover up the solar panels and they wouldn't be able to keep powered up anymore. But Spirit ended up lasting for about 10 years and and Opportunity ended up lasting for almost 15 years. And we we started to think that that uh, Opportunity was unstoppable because it was just a little <laughs> rover that kept on going. You know, her memory started to go at some point. Um, her joints started to not work so well. One of her wheels wasn't working all that well. But she just kept going. It was like, well, we'll just see how much farther we can push her. And then um, 
uh, I worked on the color cameras for that mission as well, the panchromatic cameras, which are, again, are the color eyes of that rover. And one day when I was working in ops, um, one of the things that we would do all the time was we would take pictures of the sun to get an idea of how dusty the atmosphere was. And we had seen from the satellites in orbit that there was a huge dust storm brewing, like about to move over, like right over the Opportunity landing site. And we went to do some sun imaging on Wednesday of that week. And the sun, we could still see it. On Friday, we took a sun image and it looked like snow on a television screen. You couldn't see anything at all. And I just remember some like frantic messages going back and forth, people asking like, was the camera pointed the wrong way? Did the dust cover close? Like what's going on? And we we looked into it and it's like, no, the camera was functioning properly, but we just couldn't see the sun because there's so much dust in the way. And the next day after that, we lost contact with the rover and the dust storm ended up encompassing the entire planet and lasted for months after that. Um, so these global dust storms happen on Mars every few years, and the, all of the rovers had survived previous ones, but this one was the the worst storm that we have ever observed on Mars. And unfortunately, it's also the one that took out opportunity. Um, we tried after the storm cleared to regain contact in a bunch of different ways, and none of them ended up being successful. And so this was uh, – we lost the contact with the rover in June of 2018, and in February of 2019, we finally decided, okay, we've done everything we possibly can. Um, so they kind of did a ceremonial last commands sent from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Um, and so I went out that went out there for that in person. I like paid my own way to get there because I really wanted to be there like for this moment. And we we tried three more times to send commands. The rover didn't wake up, which is what we expected. Um, and then they called the mission over, and it it was this extremely emotional moment where we were all just like hanging out above mission control, crying our eyes out, hugging each other. Like some people just kind of looked like they were in a daze wondering what they were going to do next because they had spent so many years of their life on this mission. Hmm. It, it was a lot. It's the first and only time I, so far I've ever been on a mission like until it ended. And I don't think even I expected it would be such a, a – an emotional response to losing contact with a robot, but it was really, really impactful. Your heart and soul was in that thing. Hey, it was like, yeah, I mean, it's hopes your friend and dream- on another planet. Yeah. The hopes and dreams of humanity is in that little tiny thing with the googly eyes that you helped control. <laughs> <laughs> we just need Matt Damon to shake all the dust off next time he's stuck on Mars. Right. Yeah, I mean, maybe someday some humans will be able to go <laughs> clean them up. We'll turn them back on, and they'll just keep on going. There you go. <laughs> oh man, well, thank you for sharing your stories about working with the rovers. Um, again, like I could talk to you forever, but I have a, just a, a couple other questions here. Could you talk to us a little bit about Planet Labs? Um, what is Planet Labs? So, Planet is an Earth observing company that operates a fleet of satellites that are about the size of a loaf of bread. I think we have about 200 of them in orbit right now. And we use them to orbit, sorry, we use them to image the entire Earth almost every single day at pretty high resolution so that we can look for change. Um, the motto of the company is see change, change the world, because we really want to be able to visualize things like the impacts of climate change. And um, the founder of the company, one of the founders of the company, Will Marshall, likes to say, you can't fix what you can't see. 
So mm-hmm. by trying to image the earth every day and looking for these places that are changing, we hope that we can better understand what's going on in all of these places so that we can then figure out what do we need to do to fix them. Cool. So you are the director of science strategy there. Is Did I get your title correct? Yes. Okay. Could you tell everybody what that entails? What's what do you what do you help do with this amazing project? So basically, I started out as a scientist using planet data when I was working at Arizona State University looking at landslides in the Canadian Arctic as an analog for landslides on Mars. And I I ended up thinking that their mission was really cool because part of my job on Mars had been to look at the planet every day to look for changes. So finding out that there was a company doing that here on Earth really intrigued me. And uh, so eventually they needed somebody to come in who could speak NASA language, planet language, and general researcher language. They said, well, you've done all (laughs) of those things. Would you like to come work for us? And I said, yes, this this sounds awesome. Uh So most of what I do is interface with the research community through the federal side of our company. So mostly NASA, but also um, any of the other, any of the other uh, like non-defense agencies that are doing scientific research. Um, and it's been amazing because instead of just working on like one or two topics on Mars on a day-to-day basis, m- I, my days can go from talking about walruses to plastic pollution to landslides to human rights abuses. Like it, it's, you never know what you're going to do on a day-to-day basis. And it's, it's exciting to see the kinds of creative things that scientists are coming up with that you can do with satellite imagery that never would have occurred to me coming mostly from a planet where there are no humans, there are no oceans. I don't have to think about clouds getting in the way of the things that I'm trying to do. So it's literally been like coming to a whole new world, uh, like learning how to look at satellite imagery of a different place. So from this data, I guess you're saying this, <laughs> I was going to say something cheesy, the sky's the limit, but there's, <laughs> there's really no, there's really no end to what, what has, what, what is being gathered. It's just gathering data to tell a story and, and then thus make policy and make discoveries from that. Is that kind of the end goal of, of planet? Right. So figuring out not just, okay, we see these changes happening, but what do we need to do about them? So what do governments need to do to take action against climate change? What do governments need to do if we're witnessing human rights atrocities from space where they can take action on those things? Mm. Um, Where are maybe um, like, where are areas that we're spotting that are having like increased greenhouse gas emissions that we might want to figure out like either some kind of remediation strategy for or uh, something like that. So it's it's cool to see like the action side of things. So you then now have, you may have to straddle just from pure science policy to political stuff, right? Because, you know, the, the whole thing about climate change and even like atrocities and other, you know, happening around the world that that now has a totally different way of thinking about things, I, I'd imagine for you. It does. I don't deal with a lot of the politics. We have separate folks that deal with that, oh, but it, it okay. was, yeah, luckily I don't have to learn that whole new side of things, but it <laughs> certainly was like emotionally jarring to realize that like the earth is a stunningly beautiful place, but to realize that you can watch how horrible humans can be to each other from space as well was heartbreaking. Cause oh that, goodness, again, yeah. that's, that's not something you deal with on Mars, but watching things like war or 
genocide or, um, you know, modern day concentration camps around the world is something that I, I almost cried seeing those for the first time in satellite images. I knew they existed. I mean, I watched the news, but seeing it and realizing like, this is a picture that was taken an hour ago. That was a lot to process. That's tough. I don't, oh my goodness. I don't know if I could do that. It just makes it so much more real when it's like, yeah, you know, it's everybody knows watches who keeps informed knows stuff happens, but you're on the cusp of like the first people in the world to see it happening. We have a couple standard questions we ask in the interview um, and they're fun ones. One is to share a pet story because the science podcast kind of puts two things together, pets and science. um, And the people that listen love hearing pet stories from our guests. Do you have a pet story you could share with us? So I used to have a dog that was an Australian cattle dog named Gus and he is hands down the smartest animal that I have ever gotten to interact with. He was trained so well that he could recognize different toys from each other. So like if you said, bring me the red ball or the blue ball or your rope. And there was just something really cool about watching an animal like learn all of these things as he was growing up because we got him as a puppy And going from a little terror that would just chew on everything to suddenly like a creature that you could kind of converse with was fascinating. (laughs) Oh, I just remember um, being – like I could tell he was smart when it got to the point where if you asked him to bring you something specific and he couldn't find that specific thing, he would panic a little bit. And then bring you the closest thing that he could find. So like (laughs) if I asked for the red ball and he couldn't find it, he would like sheepishly bring the blue ball and then look at you kind of like, is this good enough? Is this okay? I tried. I promise I really tried. (laughs) Oh man, that's adorable. How did you, what kind of training techniques did did you use with Gus to, to get that kind of response? A lot of it was just when he was a puppy, he wanted to chew on everything. And so as soon as he chewed on something he wasn't supposed to, we would take it out of his mouth and then replace it with a thing that he should chew on. But I'm I'm not really sure how he got to the point where he recognized different toys. It must have just been over time as we kept referring to them specifically. He like made those <laughs> connections. Those herding dogs are so smart though. Like they've just got a computer for a brain, I tell you. They are. I'm I'm sure he was, you know, smarter than some small children. <laughs> <laughs> Bunsen's not great with that. He's our Bernice Mountain dog. Like he's smart and he was easy to train. But if like I told him to go get something, he'd be like, meh, that's not what I was bred for. I was bred to pull things and sleep. So that's <laughs> <what>. <laughs> so he would not be very agreeable to go get things. <laughs> our golden retriever, though, we're working on that of her going to get stuff. But I mean, it's in her name to retrieve. So it's going yeah. a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's cute. Well, thanks for sharing your story about Gus. Um, the other the other question we asked our guests to share is a super fact. It's it's a story or a fact that when you tell people, it kind of blows their minds a bit. Um, do you have a super fact you could share with us? I've been really obsessed with this book that I read recently called Wayfinding that I thought would just be a book about like the history of different indigenous navigation methods, but it actually goes into a lot of neuroscience and personal stories and things that have completely changed the way that I interact with the world. Um, And one of the things that I learned from this book was that when you are just existing in the world, walking around, your brain is really taking every single sensory input 
into play when it's trying to make a mental map of where you've been. And so things like smell and sound play a big role in that. And the way that it was describing this from a neuroscience standpoint has encouraged me to no longer wear headphones when I go for a walk because I want to see if it helps improve my memory um, and just the way I can navigate through the city. Uh, And I thought that that was really interesting that we probably take all of our senses other than sight for granted when we're walking around in places. And I, I didn't realize how important actually existing entirely in a space was for you to be able to process that and like have it stick in your hippocampus. So when you go back later, you'll have a better memory of what that place was like. Oh man. So like if you're, if you're going for a nature walk and you're jamming out to, or you're listening to a podcast, I mean, you could listen to this podcast folks, but anyways, if you're listening, <laughs> if you're listening to a podcast or, or some music, you, you don't remember your experiences as sharply. Is that, is that kind of where we're going with this? Right. So incorporating wow. other senses helps those signals like record more strongly in your brain. And it probably makes a lot of sense when you think about things like you probably have a childhood memory of like a specific smell of dinner at maybe your grandparents' house for the holidays or uh, a place that you went where like the sound really sticks in your head, like a loud market or Mm -hmm. the sound that your, your dog made when it was playing in a park or something like that. And apparently those things really help with like the the memories sticking in place. And I thought that that was really interesting. That is so cool. We, we just came back from the the mountains. We live really close to the Rocky mountains and uh, like the, the sound, the wind makes at this time of year across kind of the, as the snow's melting, like you, that just like, you can just make a mental picture of that just from the sound alone. So that's so cool. That's a, that is a super fact. Thank you for sharing that. (laughs) Oh, no problem. The the last section of the interview is a really fun one. Um, I, I guess get to talk about a cause or or a hobby or something that they're really passionate about that's maybe outside of what they do uh, with their job. Um, some guests have talked about their love of tattoos. Other guests have talked about cooking or or causes that they support. Um, what what would you like to chat with us about in this section? I guess if it's something not related to my job. I'm really into photography, which kind of sounds related to my job since I work on (laughs) space cameras. But I I like to say I'm a photographer of multiple planets. So in addition to all the space camera stuff, I have a huge collection of like old film cameras, um, some Polaroid cameras, uh, like a a digital camera. And unfortunately, I don't have as much time these days to take them out and play with them as I would like. But uh, I used to go like every single weekend I would go out and just take pictures of places, um, like try to go on expeditions. Like I went to Iceland for a couple of weeks once, like purely just to take photographs. Um, and I would love to carve out more time for that in the future when the world reopens. Uh, cause I'm yeah. not great at taking vacation. <laughs> yeah. COVID has kind of slowed everybody's, um, travel traveling a bit. You went to Iceland for a couple of weeks. Iceland I hear is beautiful. Oh my gosh, it was gorgeous. I went with a friend of mine who's actually a pretty well-known Canadian landscape photographer. Well, uh, two of them actually, Dave Brosha and Paul uh, Zizka. And they ran a little workshop where we got to go and see the Aurora. So we had to go in oh, cool. February because yep, yep. the Aurora is good in winter. Yep. Uh, right, in Canada, you know that. <laughs> uh, so it was very cold, but um, 
I had never seen the Aurora really in, in real life before. And everybody told me, oh, it, it's not anything like photos. It, it doesn't look like that in real life. Well, they were wrong. This was like a K5. The sky was on fire with green and purple. And it's the most stunning thing I have ever seen in real life. It, it was absolutely worth freezing my fingers off for. Yeah. We, we are where I live in Canada. We get the Aurora in the winter. Um, and it's super special. Like it's only a certain time in the winter that you get it. And it really, I think it depends on what's happening with the sun that year too. Um, some years there's a greater chance of seeing it and some years there's not. And um, it is, it, it is, it just changes, changes your life when you see it crazy for the first time. Um, I was probably 26 when I saw it, like, as you're exp- ex- explaining, I was driving back from coaching basketball at like one o'clock in the morning in February. It was in February. And I looked out my car window and it was happening. I had to stop on the side of the highway. And uh, I think, and I just could do staring. I didn't have a camera or anything. Um, oh, no. this was like, I just experienced it and it was dancing. It was insane. Were, was it directly over your head or was it like, uh, like north of you? Um, uh, it was you, kind of it. just, it was almost surrounding us. We were standing kind of in like a frozen oh, wow, cool. lake-ish area. Yeah. So it was just everywhere. And we had little mountains on one side and like this lake on the other. It it was so stunning. <laughs> it's cool. I took a, I took a cool shot this year of it with Bunsen, our Bernice mountain dog um, at <laughs> night with my terrible iPhone camera. But uh, for for people who have never seen it before, it's kind of like magic. So, yeah. Uh, it's unlike anything you'll ever you... see anywhere else, right? So, yeah, it's, it's wild. Um, before we move on, move on. Um, where where would your next travel bug take you if you could go? This is probably going to sound silly, but I really want to go to Newfoundland. I've never been there before, and uh, I I want to go hide out on Fogo Island and write. I, I have a book that I need to finish, and I think just oh, going cool. up and staring off at icebergs floating by in in the peacefulness would be a really great place to write. The East Coast of Canada is pretty beautiful. Um, have you been to <laughs> Newfoundland before? No, I've never been any farther east than uh, the Canadian Space Agency, actually, so near Montreal. Oh, near Montreal, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy rugged, crazy rocky, and and then the Canadian accent falls away and then you get the Newfie accent accent and, and you'll be like, what's, what's going on here? So <laughs> I find it so endearing. I think it's really cute. <laughs> oh, it's, it is. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you can tell uh, when two, we have friends um, and I have actually coworkers from Newfoundland and uh, they turn, they can turn their accent on and off. But when they're talking to each other uh, from somebody else from Newfoundland, their accent comes right back up. I think that's the same with accents from all over the world though. Um, yeah, <laughs> I know I say a and, uh, and things like that a lot more when I'm talking to a Canadian than somebody else. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Very cool. Well, that's, that's uh, photography is, is something that's really distressing for sure. Like it takes, it's kind of like something where you lose yourself in it and, and you, you must get some enjoyment and stress relief from it as well. Yeah. It's a nice way to just zone out and appreciate the things around you that are beautiful. Um, so we're at the end of the interview. Where can people find you on social media if they want to be found? Uh, sorry, let me let me ask that again. I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, we're at the end of the interview. Where can you be found on social media if people want to follow you? 
Well, I'm pretty easy to find on the internet anywhere as at Tanya of Mars. So T-A-N-Y-A. Um, I'm on mostly on Twitter, but also Instagram, Medium, uh, Facebook, not too much. But if you really, really want like a steady stream of Mars consciousness and space stuff, definitely go to Twitter. Perfect. Is And then um, uh, Planets is also on Twitter as well. Planet. Yes, you can follow sorry, them at... Pla- yeah, sorry, Planet. Planet is on Twitter as well. Yes, you can follow them at, at Planet Labs, and you'll see a lot of the cool satellite images that we take. Um, you can also find all of the NASA rover missions on Twitter as well, and they'll be sharing all of their latest updates. So that's a really great place to just get all of your space news kind of in a steady stream all at once. And last question, um, do you personally know the person that runs the, uh, the, the fake curiosity Twitter account? Because it's on point most of the time. Do you follow the fake curiosity account? Oh, the, the sarcastic rover one? The sarcastic rover, yeah. I do. I met him in person once you when have? I came oh, to Alberta. <laughs> <laughs> He's Canadian. <laughs> Is he? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That's, that's hilarious. Um, yeah, we met he- him in Calgary. Oh, that's great. Uh, I loved it when Perseverance was landing and Curiosity was being all salty about this new, <laughs> the new, the new kid on the block coming into his, his hood or whatever. It was pretty funny. So <laughs> they've got a good dynamic going on there. Yeah. They, they, they pick at each other. I'll make sure those links are in the show notes, folks. Um, so if you're not on Twitter or if you, you, you know, if you want just a click link, you're one click away, um, from Tanya and, and the planet. So there you go. Um, thank you so much for giving up your time to talk to us. Uh, this interview could have been double the time just to hear stories about your work with the rovers and, and stuff that you found on Mars. It's just to talk to somebody that's was part of that, that brought those pictures from another planet to humanity. I mean, just from myself as a human of earth, thank you so much. Um, I, I personally watched all of the missions that landed on Mars with like such pride and I just want you to know that you were you being a part of that, everybody feels that too, who loves science. Like the the whole world is cheering for for those missions. So thank you. Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you so much. It's good to know that these are leaving an impact on people because that's that's why we're doing them in the first place. Oh man, I when Curiosity landed, I was screaming. Uh, I was <laughs> yelling. I was like, yeah, I was just losing my mind. So <laughs> it was a big deal. It's a big deal. So thank you. You take care of yourself and have a, a great day with all of your, your work now with satellites. Okay, thanks so much. Okay, it's the time for the family section, which today is going to be reverse woo or wow. Uh, we mocked dad about doing that. Um, and that is where we ask dad questions and see if he will be able to answer them. So this is all about space because uh, dad wanted to pick a topic that he knew a lot about because he's asked like four people about space. Well, and actually, I think it doesn't matter what topic we do. Jason is a walking, living, breathing internet. And he knows so many facts about absolutely everything. I don't think that we are going to be able to stump him, but we're going to try. Here we go with the wow. In 2018, data from Messenger, a scouting satellite that went to Mercury, revealed cliff-like land formations known as fault scraps. Because the fault scraps are relatively small, scientists are sure that they were not created long ago and that the planet is still contracting 4.5 billion years after the solar system was formed. Statement number two. 
if you lump together all of the thousands and thousands of asteroids in the solar system, it is almost as massive as the Earth's moon. Statement three, did you know that you can fit every single one of the planets in this, our solar system in between the Earth and the moon and still have 4,392 kilometers around 2,729 miles to spare? Okay, so the first statement was about Mercury still contracting. Mm -hmm. All right, Mer Mercury. So the second statement was uh, the asteroids. Yep. And then the third, third statement was about the planets. Okay. So I know the second statement's uh, false. If you added up all of the asteroids, it would be way bigger than our moon. I know Ceres alone is uh, not quite moon size, but Ceres as an asteroid is pretty big. And the Expanse, they actually live on Ceres. I don't know about that first one, but I remember seeing an infographic about the third one being true, that all of the planets could actually fit between, could fit between where Earth is and where the moon is. So I'm going to go with the third statement as being true. Okay, so we will start with the first statement. The first statement is... Um, somewhat true, but we changed it. Uh, it was not in 2018. It was actually in 2016 that the messenger, uh, satellite, uh, found cliff-like formation. So Mercury is actually shrinking and has tectonic, uh, activity. It's fake because it's the wrong year. Oof. And then we, we pulled that out of, uh, Jason's, um, playbook. All right. The second one is... But, but, but also fake. But, Dad, you're wrong for the reason why it's fake. Uh -oh. Now, if you lump together all of the thousands and thousands of asteroids, it would actually make up about 10% of our moon. Yeah. Okay, so that I lose. No, no, you won because the last one is true. Oh. Yeah, the last one is true. You have... <laughs> you can put together all of the planets in the solar system and still... And between... Are the Earth and the Moon, and still have room to spare. Really? So all of the asteroids only make up 10% of the Moon? Yep. You can thank NASA for that information and Space.com. You can fact check that. It's for the, like, the junior... Um, it's like a junior worksheet for grade 5 to 12 students. It's going to be awesome when you fact check it. Okay. Emphasis on the grade 5. Okay, so that is Wu or Wow. Dad is one. It's almost like, are you smarter than a fifth grader? So, yeah, dad won, we're well. Space. Okay, it's time for uh, story time with me, Adam. It is the second part of the family section. I don't know. We just did the we're well. Um, and, yeah, it is time to talk about stories that have happened within the past one or two weeks. I will start. So, I don't know if you've seen this video, but there's this video of a guy and his dog. I think it's a pit bull. And what he did was he grabbed the dog's face and kind of covered his nose with his mouth and then blew into it. It was a, it, it, the dog was fine with it. Um, and what happened was with the little flappy flaps of the dog's mouth, their lips went, and it was really funny. Um, so I tried it with Beaker. Uh, does not work on Beaker. Um, does not work on Bunsen either because Bunsen just doesn't want to do it. And that's okay. I'm not going to pester them anymore. It is, I think, slightly uncomfortable for the doggy. So don't do it if your dog is being squirmy-wormy. Don't do it too many times because it, it'll just get annoying for the doggy. Uh, but yeah, that is my story. Trying fun things with the dogs and they are not working. So I need to find something more fun. Dad, do you have a story? 
I mentioned at the start of the podcast that we would talk, I would talk about um, the porcupine incident. It was definitely something traumatic that happened last week. Actually, I think a week ago, hey, last Thursday, I was taking the dogs for a walk It um, and they were off leash. And before that, uh, we had had, I had them both on leash because of the coyote incident. And I wanted to make sure that whole area was super safe. So they were on leash for two or three days. Never saw uh, any animal off leash. Something came rustling out of the low bush. I thought it was a deer. Um, Beaker took af- took like went to go see what it was, and Bunsen cut her off. And then she stopped. So I don't know. Maybe she sensed from Bunsen something was weird there. And um, it happened so fast. Like I was maybe. 20 steps away from Bunsen. I think he went to smell it. Like he's not aggressive. He wasn't going to try and hurt it. Uh, but he, he like got too close and porcupines don't shoot their quills. We talked about that already, but it, I don't know. I didn't see what happened, but he, I think he smelt it. He got too close and that, then the fight was on. Then he was mad because it spiked him and then he tried to bite it. And the poor guy got all of these quills up on the inside of his mouth. And then he tried, and then it was like he was trying to body check it. And by then I was really close to him. So he had quills in his shoulder and his chest. Oh my goodness. So I phoned Chris and I was like, probably freaked her out. I was like, we need to get Bunsen to um, uh, vet hospital right now uh, because he was in a rough shape. Like there was quills all through his face and, and especially up in the roof of his mouth. I was really worried about that. I mean, burners have such a big mouth. He just probably like he was trying to take giant bites at it, like one or two. I think I saw him do, and it was just a mess. Thankfully, Chris found a open vet, and we got him there with a very stressful drive in the van. The poor guy, uh, he had a, he had a, he had a porcupine quill right through his tongue. Two <laughs> two, porcupine, two porcupine, quills. porcupine quills right through his tongue. His great big tongue. And uh, the vet did such a good job, got them sedated, got them all out. Of course, one of the things that happens is it's really tough to see quills on a fluffy dog like Bunsen. So even though the the vet team got all of those quills out of his face, like between 60 and 70 quills, there were still some in his shoulder and they were a bit worried about that. So uh, the next day, Chris took him in for further light surgery. So he's kind of got a nasty incision where they went in and got all the quills out of his shoulder. So he's now on... He's in a cone, smashing into everything um, for at least another week. Uh, his fur is coming back. It was pretty weird not having fur on that patch of his shoulder. Um, one cool thing is Adam and I were like, man, is Bunsen muscly. He's like jacked. He's like so strong because you put your hand on his bare skin and it just ripples. It's one beefy, beefy guy. So that's the porcupine story. Very sad for Bunsen. Very tough day for him, but he bounced back within a day. He's totally back to normal now. Quick addition to that story, Bunsen is put together like an Ikea chair. He has staples in his arm. So, yeah, Mom, do you have a story? I sure do. My story has to do with something that I have been wanting for a very, very long time. So we have a deck and we have a door that goes out into the deck. And every year, it's nice to have the door open and the breeze coming through. But with that comes bugs. So flies. And I actually, I really hate flies. I hate them. And sometimes we have these farm flies. Yuck. Last year and the year before, I went to like Costco and Home Depot and uh, Rona and Home Hardware to look for 
one of those screen doors that is slippy slidey. And um, alas and alack, the way our door is built, there is a little clip thing, does not allow um, for that to be installed unless you beef up the door frame. I don't have the skill to do that. Jason, God bless his soul, does not have the skill to do that. Hey. <laughs> well, maybe now with your cosplay. When we were first married, for sure not. <laughs> but now maybe I should I should talk you up. Anyway, so um, I found a company um, that makes a product called Phantom Blinds. Doesn't matter what the product is, but uh, it works really well. They came and installed it, so now I can go in and out and have the dogs on the deck and be able to let them out without having the door open for them coming in and out, in and out. And then I've got the fly problem under control. And today I put the furbo the furbo out there and uh, creeped on Beaker as she was beakering. It was super cute. <laughs> and that's my story. Thanks for listening. Are you not going to talk about the fact how Bunsen, if he gets really excited, almost charges right through the screen door? He's done that. He's almost like gone right through it because it like lifts up in the bottom. If you're careful. Yeah, Yeah, it is like the Kool-Aid man. But yeah, that is story time. Uh, Thank you for listening. Um, I hope to see you guys next time on the podcast. Bye-bye. That's the end of another podcast episode. Thanks for tuning in this week and coming back week after week to listen to our crazy science show. Special thanks to Dr. Tanya Harrison, who talked to us about her work on the Mars rovers and satellites, as well as some fun stories about her time in Iceland. Thanks, Doc. We'd also like to give a special shout-out to our top-tier patrons on Patreon. Without their support, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. If you want to hear your name in the podcast, head over to the Patreon page and sign up. Take it away, Chris. Nate Stephenson, Debbie Anderson, Courtney Proven, Renee Hardy, Mary Rader, Shelby Leggett, Dan Fry, Mary Coos, Katia Lynch, Marianne McNally, Andrea Persons, Elizabeth Bourgeois, Karen Beth St. George, Bianca Hyde, Lisa Swartz, Catherine Jordan, Donna Craig, Lila Ashier, Jody Ogren, Liz Button, Kathy Zerker, and Ben Rathert. Let's close with the dog's motto for science, empathy, and cuteness. Uh-huh.